Hi, I'm Tyra G., your host of Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. Welcome again to our virtual global gathering of phenomenal listeners. Yes, you, fearsome and generous, humble and honest in pursuit of new possibilities and purpose. Every week we meet at this table for one hour to experience, inspire, educate, encourage, and empower each other through our joys and our lessons learned. We share topics that tradition tells us they're just some things we don't talk about. But here, we live beyond both the judgment and the wreckage. We share aha moments and stories that have been left in our pockets for way too long. Every week, we start right where we are. Although many of your voices will speak light into darkness, there is no insignificant person around this table. However, you must come dressed in your inner awesome, believing that impossible is merely a word to describe the degree of difficulty. You're listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia, Cablecast on Cox and Verizon, Fios Channel 37, and Comcast Channel 27 in Reston, and webcast worldwide on the internet at www.radiofairfax.org every Saturday evening at 8 p.m. Should you miss us? You can hear our archive, Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. podcast in my website, Media Room at tyragarlington.com or tune in Apple Podcast and many others. If you feel like connecting with me offline, that's easy too. Email me at tyra at tyragarlington.com Thank you so much for tuning in and thank you Courtney Nero and happy birthday Courtney for composing and performing our Frankly Speaking theme song and for naming it I'm Listening So what do you feel when you read or hear the phrase climate change? Concern? Curiosity? Disbelief? Anything? Nothing? As a part of our Courageous Conversation series, Frankly Speaking has been exploring all things climate change. Our last broadcast took a 50,000-foot view of climate change today and its negative impact on issues like pandemic vaccine apartheid, the equity of solar energy implementation, educational and political choices, and some of our most beloved traditions. This week we are looking at how our life choices in the past, present, and the future are and will impact our sustainability on Earth as we know it. I want to create a common thought space today by sharing excerpts from a 2020 keynote speech given by Dr. Inger Anderson, Executive Director of the UN Environmental Program titled, Sustaining All Life on Earth. And I quote, 
that we even need to utter this phrase at all should ring alarm bells. We have long assumed that nature would provide us no matter what. For too long we have seen the living world as endless, inexhaustible resources for us to tap. But the veil is falling. Human activities are pushing the nature's world's limit to its breaking point, placing the well-being of all life on Earth, including our own, in grave peril. The warning signs are all around. Forests destroyed by wildfires, glaciers melting at alarm, alarming speeds, the mass extinction of species, the dying of coral reefs, the very ecosystems that feed and water us, that are so essential to life on Earth, are collapsing as the natural world unveils around us. Beneath the surface, our seas and oceans are profoundly unsettling changes taking place. Global heating is causing the world's oceans to warm at an alarming rate. These changes are disrupting one of the world's most important food baskets, which provide one-fifth of the world's population with a supply of protein. We're literally suffocating our oceans. Now to change our course will require a revolution in perspective. The natural world must inspire more than just awe. We must return to a time when we understood how the living world sustains humanity. And we must begin to see the natural world as deeply interconnected. The beauty of this understanding is that the same is true in reverse. By tackling the damage done to one part of the system, we can begin to reverse the damage done elsewhere. Now this is the work. We should be in the business of arresting the destruction of the natural world so we can sustain all life on Earth, including our own. We need to set targets that are ambitious, inclusive, measurable, and financial. The stakes could not be higher. We're losing species on our planet that have never been recorded in history. Are we going to be the generation that allows all this to disappear? No. Today we make the decision to halt this loss, to end the destruction of the living world. In doing so, we ensure our stability for people, for the planet, for wildlife, for prosperity, for peace. My guest today, Dr. Tom Hayes, interest in understanding and advocating for natural resource com excuse me, conservation and residential and commercial energy efficiency will help us look at the dynamics of our sustainability. Welcome, Tom, to the Frankly Speaking Table. Thank you for taking time to call us from somewhere special this evening. And now it's your time to add your story to the Frankly Speaking Human Library. Help our listening audience to learn about your journey to your current commitment to the field of sustainability. 
Thanks, Tyra. Thank you. Well, um, I know everybody's unique, and I have a unique story, too. And some of it has led me to a lot of different kinds of things, and part of it is sustainability is something that's important and very interesting to me. <clears throat> I was born in Oklahoma City, the second of six boys. We weren't all born in Oklahoma City. The last two were born in Albuquerque, where I grew up, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And being in Albuquerque and being in New Mexico, I was more in touch with nature maybe than people in other parts of the country, other parts of the world. Certainly, it wasn't a big city, and when I was a little boy, we lived in the last row of houses, and we used to go out on the slope up to the mountain there and chase the lizards and the tumbleweeds, and not everybody got to do that when they were kids, I'm sure. Uh, correct, and not everybody wanted to. <laughs> Excuse I went me. to a Catholic school mm-hmm. for grade school and high school. Then I went to New Mexico State University, where I started off studying engineering, but I didn't like calculus and having to memorize all those equations and everything, so I switched to psychology because I found that more interesting and something I could more readily grasp and understand and see in my real life than quadratic equations. So I went to graduate school in Berkeley, California, studying experimental psychology. And for many years, many decades, actually, I've been practicing applied psychology, doing research and evaluation, uh, not as a clinical psychologist or a counselor, but as somebody who looks at systems and how they work and how to make them work better. And those systems have included training systems, development in the military and in atomic energy, Mm. all the way to uh, human services and how to make those services work better for abused and neglected children and their families. After I did my postdoc in visual neurophysiology of fish, I started working in a children's mental health center. And I worked there for several years on uh, first with understanding behaviors of autistic children in a, in a preschool setting. And then we got a grant to work with abusive and neglectful parents and children uh, to see how we could improve parenting education classes and improve self-help groups among parents to help them better understand their children's development and be better tutors and teachers and disciples of with children, not discipline, but the disciple of the things that are good in raising a child and helping them understand how to be a good person. So that's an important part of my development is understanding child development and and working in those areas. I worked for the Child Welfare League of America for many years on data systems that states and courts and tribes use to track cases and to try to make continuous improvement in the lives of children and families that are suffering from these problems that some of which they learned when they were kids. So Mm -hmm. in the meantime, I've uh, worked as a consultant in in between jobs and uh, worked as a, I'm working as a consultant now, part-time retired and part-time consultant doing evaluation of science, technology, education, uh, engineering, math education, and higher education, and some, evaluating some National Science Foundation grants for a university and a college that are helping underprivileged minority students get into STEM education and into STEM careers. 
So it's all been very interesting, and I'm glad I have an opportunity to keep learning. And I feel very lucky to have been what I've been been through, what I've been through, and to be where I am. Um, and happy to share some of the reading that I've done and some ideas that I have about sustainability. I'm going to go beyond just global warming. That's only one of the challenges to sustainability. There's also challenges in water and clean air and disposal of trash and food and a lot of things that are interrelated. I'll talk about the interrelatedness a bit, too. Great, great. First, what, are, what is it that we want to sustain when we talk about sustainability? For some people, it can include sustaining the profitability and viability of their business or improving the effectiveness and funding of a government agency or sustainable approaches to agriculture or, or fisheries in a specific region or country or broader the sustainability and the global relationship between energy and environment. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of questions about sustainability. It requires that you develop personal knowledge about it and that you make choices as an individual and also choices with regard to social and political change so that we can save off some of the worst predictions about what all these sustainability issues might cost. And I'll share some more in-depth analysis of some of today's and tomorrow's most important sustainability efforts and research and development that's going on to improve sustainability in a lot of different ways. I want to ask you something, Tom, because uh, I was fascinated. And uh, the, uh, okay, was it neurophysiology? What what was that? Neurophysiology. Okay. Well, I was was measuring the impulses in the brains of trout and some other fish as I was passing visual stimuli pass them on a water-filled globe that so their eye was in the water so the medium that they're used to seeing things in uh-huh. and seeing how they process targets that are moving from front to back versus back to front so if you think about a trout in a stream uh-huh. it's sitting there waiting for things and the things that are interested are the things that are floating down the stream going from the front in front of them to behind them Right. If something's coming up from behind them to the front of them, then it's swimming, and it's a stronger swimmer than they are, so they have to respond differently. So I was looking at some of that. So should I assume, then, that fish have learned behavior? Oh, yeah. <laughs> My dissertation was about how tiny, baby, little cichlid fish uh-huh. imprint on their parents, and they're so small I could fit 20 of them on my thumbnail. What? They learn at that stage of development. Oh, that is amazing. I just, because, one, we have an international audience, but a lot of what you spoke of was technical, but there's some one other thing I don't want us to get far away from before we go forward. And the work that you did with children, uh, children uh, who may be less than because of economy or development or family situations. And I want you at some point, I made a note, did you see a difference in how they understand sustainability, not the terminology, but what it embodies, like you were saying before, it's not just global warming. It's the use of uh, transportation and resources. Did they? Can they understand that, and were you able or did you at that point in time in your career think about linking classes, haves and haves not, to how we pursue, perceive and deal with, take in, and how we're going to help the environment? No, that was all beyond what I was doing. I was working 
with them on their social and family problems, and I hadn't really thought much about sustainability until subsequent to that. And uh, I, I, I think sustainability of families and their economics and all of that is very important, and income inequality is very important. And it's important to keep social justice in mind when you're thinking about sustainability. But in my own work, it was more disjointed than that. Well, I think what, what you just said was the key thing. We, sustainability is not just. It has social implications as well. And we can't step away from that because uh, well, that, that we'll go later into that. But what I'm learning is cultural competence and societal differences impact how we can have the discussion so people receive right. it. Okay, I, right. I interrupted you, but I had questions, and you know, I wanted to make sure maybe the audience had a couple of questions as well. That's okay, but we might need two hours instead of one to go through everything. You I can come say. back. You can, listen. <laughs> I might need to. That's fine with so me. A little bit of history about a little bit of history about sustainability. Some of it relates to firearms and animal extinction and decimation in our history, like what almost happened to the American bison and in the United States in its early years that people were shooting them just for fun or for hides and there seemed to be so many thousands of them roaming the plains that they didn't think that there was any problem but they were almost driven to extinction. The mm. Industrial Revolution and pollution that came along with it in the late 1800s, uh, coal burning and, and uh, pollution from process, industrial processes that accompanied the Industrial Revolution is part of the need to think about sustainability. Some of the early organizations included something called the Society for the Protection of Birds in 1889, mm -hmm. and that's grown in terms of the number of organizations, and I'll talk a little bit about that briefly later. Okay. In 1968, mm -hmm. there was an important book called The Population Bomb that predicted how our growing population was going to overcome the planet's capability, and its predictions were dire, but they didn't quite come true because people started having fewer children, mm -hmm. but it's still a problem, the growing population. The first UN Environment Summit was only in 1972 when people started looking at that sort of globally in the environment. The U.S. Air Pollution Control Act of 1955, the British Clean Air Act 1956. So it's really in about the last half a century that we started looking at these things <clears throat> and taking action in groups and, and governments. Uh, another key point in the history was The Silent Spring, the book by Rachel Carson in 1962, showing the dangers of DDT, the pesticide that was mm -hmm. so broadly used. So I think that there's an interesting history back in how some of these things first started. The first conservation groups in the English-speaking world, I, I didn't really look at all over the world, but the first ones were dedicated to saving wildlife and wild lands. Audubon Society, the Boone and Crockett Club, the Sierra Club, Save the Redwoods, Wilderness Society was started by Aldo Leopold and others to preserve wilderness, and the National Wildlife Federation brought together hunters and fishermen. And people are some people are down on hunters and fishermen, but in the society and the nature, the natural situation we live in, sometimes they are a necessary balancing thing if there aren't as many predators around, and to keep wildlife in balance with the uh, with the nature that they have left. Mm -hmm. The Ecologist mm -hmm. Union was later the Nature Conservancy, uh, started by scientists to acquire ecologically important reserves. International Union for Conserv Conservation of Natural and Nature and Natural Resources in uh, 1948. 
Rural Wildlife Fund, founded by Sir Julian Huxley and some Dutch and British royals. Currently, there's over 15,000 registered nonprofits in the U.S. focused on environment and animal welfare. Many of them are small and focused on local issues, and some people have said maybe that's too many organizations. So if you're thinking about working with one or donating to one, you need to consider who's doing what, how effectively, what, how much of the donor dollars go to the cause versus the organization, the role of volunteers, because there's a lot of groups out there that you could become associated with that's important to know who's doing the right things for the right reason in the right ways. Mm-hmm. So what do we want to sustain? It depends on what we need and what we value. The roles of science, systems modeling, risk and cost benefit, information dissemination, human cognition and behavior, power and decision making, laws and enforcement all play a role. And as applied psychologist, I'm interested in a lot of those components that reflect human behavior, human analysis, human education, information dissemination, and how decisions are made and how laws are made and enforced. Well, Tom, so before you leave not that, to focus on the animals and the and the wildlife, but also the role of people. Okay, just because you've been studying it, what's the most impactful thing that that you would say to our audience that you have learned in your research? What are the needs? What do we want to explain? What do we? What you just said. What have you learned is the most impactful thing to date? You gave us history. You told us uh, what happened in the last half of the century. You said, hey, if you want to uh, join one of these or, or contribute, make sure you know what it is you want to do and what it is they want to do, right? Mm-hmm. But um, the last thing you said, I want you to say again. I want you to repeat it because uh, to me that encapsulates the scope that I'd like to focus on. Can you do that? I don't know if I can do that or not. I have a hard time focusing sometimes. Tom. And <laughs> I'd like to take a systems view of things and not say this is the most important or that's the most important. Okay, because okay. I think what's most important is understanding how systems interact and how components relate to each other and uh, how you make things happen to be different. And it doesn't matter if it's you're doing something to make clean water water cleaner or air cleaner or reduce uh, methane coming from cows or all of those things are important, but you need to understand the systems, what contributes to uh, global warming and climate change, what contributes to water problems and water scarcity, and you have to take a scientific approach to it to understand what it is you're doing and what you need to do differently Okay. as you go along. And some of the science now suggests we've got quite a bleak future with the role of greenhouse gases and global warming and the likely consequences as shown in the latest UN governmental panel on climate change. But having a level of confidence that there are growing catastrophes doesn't mean solutions are easier, that they're broadly embraced. People have to understand what they can do and what they can influence other people to do. Okay. In terms of the psychology, there's an old part of psychology called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs that I'm sure you've heard of, that levels are people's physiological needs, their safety needs, their social needs, their esteem needs, their self-actualization needs. And some of these more basic ones are really are what's at risk in terms of uh, the planet and, and Earth to meet people's physiological needs and their safety needs and their social needs. And they're not all in a hierarchy, and that system can 
be criticized as too simplistic, but there are dynamic interactions and cultural effects and judgments about what it is that makes my needs being met. And some people can have all the self-esteem and safety needs and all of that and still want more, and that's more of a cultural thing and Mm -hmm. contributes to the inequality and, and to the lack of sustainability for other people that don't have those same opportunities. So I think we have to look at things with that hierarchy of needs in mind, but it's it's uh, more complex than that. And I hate to make things too complex for people, but I, at the same time, I think I need to, to help them look at it and to be ready to think about it in the way of complexity. So if we look at something like a sustainable business model, some of them were based on you sustain your business by planned obsolescence. So the car business <coughs> made cars so that they'd poop out soon after the warranty was over and somebody would have to buy a new car. Mm-hmm. And until mm-hmm. cheaper cars and more reliable cars came along, they got away with it. And there's still some of that uh, going on. Like if you look at iPhones, and I hope they don't come after me for this, but <laughs> that sort of uh, planned obsolescence. The latest iPhone has new features that the old one didn't have, and you got to have the latest iPhone or you're not cool. And that's a kind of planned obsolescence that I think is, is wasteful and, and sends people down the wrong path. If you look at some of the broader interacting sectors in environmental sustainability, some of them relate to human population growth. With the population growth, we need more energy, transportation, more water, fresh water and ocean water, more agriculture, more fisheries. Some other things, some more housing, better housing, um, energy-efficient housing. And with more people and more opportunities, there's more tourism and recreation. All these areas play a role in human activity that has some impact potentially on sustainability. And there's increasing technology and production from the corporate and business side, from the raw material usage, how much copper is being used, how, what are they having to do to find tungsten and manufacturing and distribution of all the things that we use and throw away versus the things that are really necessary, air quality, trash, recycling, weather, temperature, all kinds of factors that play a role in this complex interrelated ecosystem that we have. And I think uh, the study of ecosystems sort of predated some of the concern with sustainability and understanding that there are complex relationships between different parts of nature and you have to understand how one thing affects another. Right. But you ask about what are some of the greatest challenges. I can't say one necessarily, but climate change certainly is one, the continuing warming of land, oceans, the atmosphere, increasing damaging weather that you mentioned earlier in the intro, fires, floods, crop failures, rising sea levels, water and Water quality is an important one. An estimated one in three people globally lack clean drinking water. Right, right, yeah. Water leads to 1.2 million deaths each year. Fresh water is also essential for washing, growing food, producing energy. The food system, after declining for a decade, world hunger is again on the rise, affecting about 10% of the world's population. It could include climate change, conflict, COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of reasons for that potentially, but something we have to keep concerning ourselves with natural resources. And according to the Global Footprint Network, humanity's annual resource consumption is far beyond the planet's ability to sustain and regenerate. Countries would need 1.75 Earths to sustain the current rate of global resource consumption. And if everyone lived like 
United States citizens, humanity would need five Earths worth of resources every year. And we only have one Earth. We don't have five. So we have to think about natural resources and depleting natural resources. When you say this, Tom, I'm going to interrupt you a second. All right. I understand what you're saying. We don't have but one Earth. We need five Earths to sustain ourselves. Well, if we have a trajectory as it is now, what is the what is what is the consequence? We obviously well, can't, you know. <laughs> the consequences are are dire. There's often a fundamental conflict between short-term advantages like profit and power, convenience, esteem, and conflict with what's doing best for long-term sustainability for the planet. Yeah. Like, uh, the the young lady from the what's her who took the sailboat across the Atlantic. She's talked to the UN about climate change. Right, right, right. Uh-huh. Anyhow, we can't all travel internationally on sailboats that don't use any fuel. But working on batteries for ships and things like that that can use cleaner energy is important. And and even electric airplanes that could take the place of uh, fossil fuel-driven airplanes. Mm-hmm. So we have to look in, I think we have to look at both human understanding, human behavior, and uh, technology. I have a little slogan for my company that's, my company is A2B, letter A, numeral two, letter B, research and development. And my little slogan is psychology plus technology equals sustainability. You have to understand the psychology of people and their decision making. You have to work in the area of technology to make improvements, and you have to do both of those to have sustainability. Now, you talked about uh, what you've done in terms of STEM and what you're doing, and that seems to make good sense based on what you said, A to B. What is the receptivity uh, to – I? okay, let me back up. I'm working with a group now, and we're trying to look at how we get African-American women recruited into the field of STEM. And one woman in Virginia Tech said, for eight years, she never saw another African-American woman, okay? So what has separated us? What, why isn't that a feel that more people go into? We, I know we haven't put it together uh, in this way. STEM hasn't been uh, something that is a word that you would hear in the academic and non-academic world for the last, what, 50 years I'm just I'm just beginning to see the power of it, but just the fact of what it is, math and engineering, right? Those two things have been barriers to uh, a lot of people of color for a long time, and uh, right, and to women. And uh, yes, I meant so, to say, so yeah, women of color are, are duly uh, sort of underrepresented. And so I, you know, um, have you come up with? Have you heard theories about how we can focus our initiative of recruitment and be successful? Because it's, it's moving very slowly based on what... Well, uh, I, yeah, I think that's what part of the National Science Foundation is doing with these STEM grants is working with a large number of universities and colleges to test out different uh, approaches to recruiting and informing uh, potential high school students about 
programs or students that might want to transfer into one of those programs, what the opportunities are, uh, why it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman or black or brown or white, you can do it. You just need sometimes to help the, the model to look up to or somebody else that can do it, that's done it. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'm looking at, um, in, in addition to that, yes, mentors are critical, but what is the language and conversation, say, high school counselors are having? Um, I have some personal experience with some young women that I, I had been mentoring, and they are in uh, advanced courses, et cetera, and yet when they sit with the counselor, there's, they're, they're being uh, redirected, say, not to Virginia Tech, but to someplace else. And um, I, I just, I know we're off, off topic for a bit, but STEM is a means to an end, in, in my opinion, to sustainability. And I, I, I'm very interested on how I can be a, a, an influencer or a change agent in that conversation. And uh, I'm just not sure yet. So I just, I stopped there when you said that. Yeah, well, I'm not sure either, but happy to think about it and to talk to people about it and to share understanding of it. I think that sustainability is out there a lot more in the uh, corporate climate Mm -hmm. that they often talk about global warming or sustainability. The, The examples I've seen in the last few months go from small ads for sustainable retirement communities in the New Yorker magazine to big corporate websites and annual reports for huge corporations. I found a tag on a pineapple a little bit back that talked about dull pineapple sustainable changes that they're doing in terms of their farming of pineapples. And I love it. So people are doing it. But um, some represent a true and major commitment. Some are more of a balancing act between environmental action and corporate profits. And some are mostly what's called greenwashing. So some of the oil and gas industries have been doing that. They say they're working towards sustainability, and maybe they're cutting back on some of their electricity here and there, but they're still in the fossil fuel business. So They're still in making profit, really bottom line driven. Exactly. Okay. I, in, I keep interrupting you because my mind is following you, and I'm trying to, my little gray cells is trying to have a relationship with my real world and, and my no, question. No, it's good. And, 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 it's and you will come back. Yep. You will come back. Um, okay, all right. Let me back up. Let's go back into the classroom. Talk to me. I'm sorry. Okay, let's, let's talk about community and national development. Okay. We mentioned that a bit before about supporting nonprofit organizations that are uh-huh. working on sustainability with your time, your money, your connections, your actions, supporting science, technology, engineering, and math education, and voting for candidates who advance sustainable policies and programs. That's very important, too, and I think it's going to be more important. And the way U.S. politics works, in my opinion, and I'm sure it's not just my opinion, is that a lot of the politicians are more concerned about the next election and who's going to pay for their TV ads and there's too much money in politics and it's driving things too much in favor of the big corporations and the big interest groups. So I think we have to work towards changing that around to politicians that are really concerned about the planet and humanity and and social justice. So I think that's an important underlying message here. I think that's probably the most important thing. We can make changes in our own lives, but we have to make those big changes as a society. And we see 
movement in that direction, and it's and it's good. But it, it's it is a dire situation, and there's lots of bad news. And the, as you and I talked earlier, mm-hmm. uh, you can't just tell people all the bad news and doom and gloom, or they're going to get too depressed and say, "Well, I can't do anything. I'm just one little person. I'm not going to stop the all the methane in the atmosphere or anything." But there are some things that are being done in in research and and evaluation that are playing a role in this. But the bad news is that the CO concentration was greater than in the 2019 and the 2020 measure. It's the uh, highest in modern 62 measured record. And if you look at ice cores, dating back as far as 800,000 years, mm-hmm. there's more CO2 in the atmosphere than there has ever been. Methane has increased year over year, highest increase since systematic measurements of that began. Global sea levels are rising for the ninth consecutive year. Global sea level rose to a new record high. They're saying that it's going to average about 1.2 inches per decade, so 3.6 inches between 1993 and now. So the sea levels are rising. What's the uh, consequence uh, of that, if it continues? Well, mm-hmm. flooding, Okay. for one thing. And, and one of the articles I read was interesting that it said that the storms aren't necessarily worse that have caused a lot of damage in coastal communities. It's the building uh, permit policies that allow people to build in areas where they shouldn't be building. Excellent. So you can have the same kind of storm, but it has a lot more damage and even kill more people because... People are building, they want to be able to see the ocean out their kitchen window. That is an excellent point. And uh, the other thing was uh, that I heard this week was uh, the insurance industry and how now they're looking for that very thing you just said, people wanting to look out of their window and how things have changed in the flooding. The insurance industry is now forcing people who normally would not have to have flood insurance to have it because yeah. of the flooding patterns. And, um, oh, wow. It's, it's interesting to me, this whole thing called sustainability. All we have to do is wake up in the morning and think or listen, and we're touched by it, and we're touched by our own destruction. And when you were talking about the politicians, you know what I thought about? Tell me. We don't know how they're going to behave because all we have is promises. And what his story is telling us, people promise, like you say, they want uh, they want money for their ads. They're going to promise to what is popular, et cetera. But by the time they're in office, all we can do is measure behavior, and that's when we have a level of disappointment. And that's when policies that would help us, it seems to me, suffer. So I don't even know how to change that. How am I going to vote for somebody that says they're going to do something? And I believe that person. They get in and they do the opposite. Then I lose faith in our whole, never mind, I'm getting on politics. Okay, here goes <laughs> well, Tyra. It's a dirty business. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, you, a lot of bad things can be said about politicians. They're not too popular, but they... Uh, they're the ones we have to think about making better, and there are some really good ones there. And I think there are. Supporting them and getting their message out, I think, is, is very important. Before we get back so, to the lecture, I want you to talk about cows and CO2. 
Well, cows and methane is. The <laughs> I mean, worst. I'm methane. Yes, I'm sorry. Um, that's at the end of my slides here. You're messing me up. Oh, um, Tom. <laughs> There's some research, some interesting research, <laughs> that if you mix a little bit of seaweed uh-huh. with the cattle food, uh-huh. they grow just yeah. as fast, and they're just as healthy, and they produce 80% less methane when they burp. After eating, <laughs> and methane so, does what? See, people don't understand. Methane is a worse warm greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. There you go. Ten times as bad, or eight times as bad, or something. I didn't want that to slip away. I didn't know where it was in your lecture, but I was just yeah. thinking about when you said I CO two. I went to cows. Okay, uh, yeah. I'm going to be a better student for the next few minutes, but I don't want to let slip away what you are doing and where you are and what you did yesterday, and I want that to be personal. So hurry up. Okay. Okay, well, I, I'll, I'll skip through the bad news because people hear a lot of that, and like you say, it's depressing. There's a lot of uh, predictions, and the choices we make now are going to really determine whether the species survives or not and what the planet's going to be like. Yeah. And it's going to affect our children and grandchildren's lives much more than our own. And we have to think about that. And I've heard that some indigenous cultures don't just think about their children and their grandchildren. They think seven generations ahead. Mm-hmm. What's the world going to be like for the seventh generation? And we need to do a little bit more of that. So the freshwater bodies and the saltwater bodies are at risk and suffering. Um, life depends on water. But maybe it's not all bad news. Uh, some analysis of climate models suggests that Maybe they're not accurate. There's an article I read from 2021 summer titled How Climate Scenarios Lost Touch with Reality. Mm-hmm. So some of the models mm-hmm. retain features that are out of date, for example, predicting continuous massive growth in coal burning, but these predictions haven't played out. And China recently said they're not going to be developing new coal-fired plants. So hopefully that is one area where things are going to be improving. It doesn't negate the major observations of climate change, but we have a little more time, maybe some more options. And if some of this technology plays out, then things can be a little bit better, a little bit quicker maybe than all the doomsayers Mm -hmm. lead us to believe. But we have to restore a billion acres of degraded land, hectares, I mean, roughly 2.5 billion acres, about the size of China, land that needs reclamation and uh, clean up the water and and worry about the the uh, overfishing in the ocean and the cost of food production. I'll, I'll talk some more about cows before I'm all done here. <laughs> no, you're going to come back. I know back. has a lot to offer. <laughs> How much time do we have? Well, actually, um, I, you know what I want you to tell the story of is what you're building and that whole thing and why and, and the okay. people. And, and that's important to me. But also tell the people where you are and tell them what it's like there and tell them what you do there. I didn't give it away uh, in the beginning. No, I sort of share time between Springfield, Virginia, and the outskirts of Washington, D.C., and a little island called St. Eustatius in the Dutch Caribbean. And uh, my wife and I came here on our honeymoon after a week in St. Martin. We decided to try another place nearby, and we came to this little island, and people are so friendly, and there's only like 3,500 people, and it's a small island, and it's Dutch, so it has some advantages that some other small places don't have. Uh, People are so friendly and nice, and and we love it 
and good scuba diving. And That's what, don't the, skip over that part. I'm waiting for you. Scuba uh, diving, okay. Yeah, and there's healthy reefs, and there's invasive lionfish that has something that has to be done about. But uh, What's a lionfish? It's, it's a fish from the, I think, from the Mediterranean. Okay. That uh, has these big spines on it, so it has no natural predators. It has poisonous spines on it, and it eats a lot of other small fish. So okay. it's not under natural control, so it has to be under human control. So it's not killing too many of the other fish in the in the coral reefs. So, okay, you and so, your wife started coming there, and, and one thing I'm wondering, based on the fact that you dive, you scuba dive, yeah. have you noticed any differences in where you are over that time period, any indication that uh, there's deterioration or anything changing that you've noticed besides these fish? Well, we've heard about coral bleaches happening in some places, and they said we don't dive there anymore because of the coral bleaching, but I haven't seen it myself. Mm -hmm. Things look pretty healthy here still and, and fortunate, and that's one of the reasons why scuba divers like it. And anyhow, we came back on vacations, brought friends down, and all of that, and then I inherited a little bit of money when my mother passed away. Not enough to buy a house, but enough to buy a piece of land. And then I was reading about building houses out of shipping containers. Mm -hmm. Down here, you have to ship stuff down in shipping containers, but there's nothing from here to ship back in a shipping container. So might as well use them for building blocks of a house. So I designed a house with two 20-foot shipping containers and a 40-foot shipping container and some reused glass doors and windows that I bought in Florida and filled up my shipping containers and shipped them down with uh, a bunch of building supplies. And now I have a place where it's three bedrooms and a big room outside that was somebody's screened-in porch before that I <laughs> filled in with other windows that I brought down that I got on a bargain from the guy, one of the guys I bought one of the shipping containers from. Mm -hmm. So I pieced together a, a comfortable house that can sleep seven people and I rented sometimes from VRBO and come down here and bring friends. And I'm here now, and a friend from our neighborhood in Virginia just arrived on Saturday. He came down to go scuba diving. Mm -hmm. uh, I designed it to keep the sun from beating down on the metal sides of the shipping container so much so there's shades over the, coming over the roof and, and panels that block the sun from beating directly on the metal. So makes it a little easier air conditioning. I'm not off the grid or anything. I still do use some power, but mm -hmm. I try to be conservative. I got the latest um, kind of air conditioner that switches to direct current instead of alternating current and uses less energy. I have an outdoor shower that I have a solar-powered uh, water heater for, so the water is heated by the sun. That's what so I was going to ask you, how, how much solar power are you using and for what? That's, yeah, okay. This is just for water heating, but I'd like to put in some wind power or solar power. Part of it is the economics of selling power when you're not using it and buying power when you need it uh, and the cost-benefit of doing it. So something I still have to look at. But I have a neighbor down the road that is completely off-grid, has solar panels and a wind machine and, and batteries and doesn't get any electricity from the well, you know, one of the things I learned uh, in last week's show was it was talking about the equity of uh, solar power implementation. And quite succinctly, uh, one of the people on the panel said, yes, one, it's difficult. 
two, you have to have a house. You have to have a house with a roof, and you have to have money. And so right away, we, we've kind of channeled who can have access to one of the ways we could increase our sustainability. And then right, they, some of that is changing, too. And they're building communities. That's what I was getting ready to say. Building yeah. is, is to put solar panels on every building, and then it's just part of the mortgage or part of the rent, and and the upfront cost is borne by the builder and pays back over time because people save money on the electricity. But it has to be thoughtfully planned in in ways that make it affordable for people that wouldn't or, or ordinarily be able to afford it. That yes, yes. To give them some of those advantages too. That was and some of the other. Oh, go ahead. Some of the other things I do is I try to catch as much rainwater as possible and use that to water plants. And I use gray water from the clothes washing machine. I don't have a dryer; I just hang things out on the line to dry, mm-hmm. and uh, take the shower water and the washing machine water and the sink water and run it down through a little through some pipes down to a place where I had some. Banana trees, but I heard the iguanas ate all the banana trees, but the iguanas are endangered, so I, I don't mind letting them have some. Oh, my goodness. I'll, I'll plant some more and put a fence around them. <laughs> well, how long is this whole process taken? Be- and I have to put a disclosure in here. Uh, I met Tom through his wife, whom I used to work for with, uh, and we became friends, and she always talked about where they would go, and she would scuba dive, and she talked about her husband building a container house and of course i have a very vivid imagination and i had never seen pictures so what i envisioned what i finally saw the pictures of i was like oh my gosh i was way off and so i said if i ever get the opportunity i'm gonna have tom talk about what he did why he did it and what's it like so how long did this process i know you're still doing it how long did it take you to get to this point um, maybe I bought the land in 2007, and I started construction in 2012, and I was just about finished when her Hurricane Irma blew off part of the roof, so I had to fix that. And, but there's always some things to do, but it was pretty much finished after Hurricane Irma, after repairs from Hurricane Irma. But you're in the more quiet piece outside of the Caribbean, right? Where are you? Yeah, it's on the sort of northeast part of the curve of the islands. Okay. So it's in between St. Martin and St. Kitts. Okay. And you can see St. Bart's from my deck, and you can see St. Martin from my deck upstairs. That is awesome. Of course, I haven't heard any invitation yet to come. Okay, well, consider yourself invited. <laughs> figure out a time where to get you down here. But I don't, I don't die. All the testing. Okay. That, okay. That's okay. There's hiking and interesting history. Okay. The, St. Eustatius helped the Americans win the Revolutionary War. They were the main source of armaments and ammunition, and they were the first place to give a salute to an American ship. So there's a plaque for the first salute, and there's been, and the airport is named FDR for Franklin Roosevelt at the airport because he came down to recognize Stacia's role in the American history. I'm impressed. And I, I think probably many of my listeners did not even know that that island existed. But more importantly, they probably did not know someone who makes a decision or is intentional about a sustainability in terms of more than just uh, global warming can come up, can go down, I guess, and create 
uh, an environment for himself. Have you modeled behavior for other? Are other people doing what you did with the container house there? Um, a few people have come and looked at it, and some of them are uh, thinking about it. And there are other people that have built uh, container homes, but I don't think they modeled themselves after me. It was just sort of parallel development. I think it's exciting. But I really do. I know it's going on in a lot of other places, and I should probably put something online about my container house. Yes, you should. Yes, you should. To look at it. And now since you're online. Besides that, on VRBO. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, what I want to do, we the show is 58 minutes long, and we're at 53 minutes. How about that? Uh, yeah, and Can I, I, I want. Can I in a couple more things here? No, I want you to come back. I, I'm planning. Well, I'll still come back. You promise? <laughs> yeah. Okay, then jam in a couple of more, but don't forget your letter. Okay. Technology is doing some good things, finding uh, ways to produce ammonia as an important fertilizer product to produce that more sustainably and use less, uh, produce less carbon dioxide. Um, there's a new battery technology is going wild to try to find better batteries that last longer today that can power more cars more easily. There's an interesting finding in water cooling technology that about 40% of all the water that gets withdrawn from lakes and rivers and wells is used not for agriculture or drinking sanitation, but to cool the power plants. And some researchers found that a simple principle of putting a charge on the screen that the water vapor passes through causes a whole lot more of it to drip back down so they can reuse the water. A huge impact potentially on uh, water use for power plants. The stuff we talked about, housing, there's a sustainable housing design for Smart Forest City Cancun to have a wholly integrated new community with uh, sustainability. Sustainability in food is an important one. And I mentioned the thing about UC Davis cattle that consumed about three ounces of seaweed, gained as much weight and burping out 82% less methane into the atmosphere. Um, there was some interesting research on a health nutrition index that looked at the environmental costs of developing, providing food, and the health benefits. And it showed that if you look at those on a graph together and you graph them, the ones that have the worst record for environment and are the worst for you are beef and uh, processed meats. And they found that if you cut down your, uh, uh, replace 10% of your daily caloric intake of beef and processed meats and, and, cha and instead have whole grains, fruits, vegetables, nuts, select seafood, you could reduce your footprint, carbon footprint by a third and add 48 healthy minutes of life for every day that you do that. So if you do that. Say that again, Tom. Say that again. If you reduce, reduce substitute ten percent of your daily caloric intake of beef and processed meat, like lunch meat or hot dogs or bacon or mm -hmm. things like that, mm -hmm. and replace that with whole grains, fruits, vegetables, nuts, things that aren't as damaging to the environment to produce and aren't as bad for your health. You'll reduce your carbon imprint as an individual person by a third, and you'll add forty-eight minutes of healthy life to yourself for every day that you do that. So now I have to, I have to because it won't matter because we're out of time. So I'll make you a deal. 
how about we do another show? You read your letter then, and you and I, I will be a better student, and we will, we will go through your, um, your outline and your slides as we should have done. But well, you've been a perfect student. This is much better for me, having questions and interaction than just yakking away. Okay. Well, let me, let me just do it this way then. You, <laughs> this has been great, Tom. Thank you. This has been Dr. Tom Hayes talking about a systemic view, our systems view, I guess we should say, of uh, sustainability. And you have been listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia, Cablecast on Cox and Verizon Files, Channel 37 and Comcast, Channel 27, in Reston and webcast worldwide on the internet at radiofairfax.org. Your seat at the table is guaranteed. I look forward to next time. Until then, remember, no matter your age, you're worthy, stronger than you feel, smarter than you think, more beautiful than you know, and more love than you can ever imagine. You are chosen. You are important. Treat yourself like someone you love and treat your environment like you love it as well. This is Tyra G. Living intentionally and loving you.